Welcome to Season 2 of Connect to Capital, a podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I am Samar Michaela, co-CEO at Scale Investors, and I will be your host for the second half of this season. I want to take this opportunity to thank Catherine Robson, the former chair of Scale Investors, for hosting the podcast and for her unwavering support and advocacy. Our vision at Scale Investors is a world where gender does not limit access to capital, and we're on a mission to maximise returns by investing into Australia's best women-led startups. We know the transformational power of collaboration, and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education, and deep network to enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors. We believe that knowledge is power, and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We are thrilled to play our part in providing entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize the significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au to learn more. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a minute. Ishko is the Managing Director of KIT, a smart money app for kids and sometimes for their parents, which is part of X15 Ventures, CBA's innovative corporate venture operation. Despite having a first-class honours and university medal in chemical engineering and commerce from Sydney University and being described by those she works with as an inspiring leader, Ish is a recovering insecure overachiever who's had to work really hard to find balance. Her road to founder-CEO took a circuitous path by management consulting, not-for-profit and venture investing. She's a passionate believer in the power of diversity and is a shining demonstration that it is possible to do well by doing good. Ish, I've been wanting to talk to you for ages. You have such an interesting background and such great insight into both being an investor and a founder. How did you find yourself here? I have to say it was a combination of lucky coincidences. I started off my life as a management consultant. So I worked at Bain for five years and I knew I didn't want to be a career consultant. I wanted to build something and not-for-profit was always my passion. So I was very lucky to be seconded to Good Start Early Learning when it was going. It had gone bankrupt. It had been taken over by a consortium of ex-investment bankers and they wanted to turn it into a for-profit, a for-purpose, sorry, organization from a for-profit So I was involved in driving some of that cultural change and that was incredibly rewarding. And I thought the change I want to make in the world is going to be in the social sector. So I joined a disability services organization and was part of advocating for the NDIS. I realized that making a change and in an organization where there isn't very much money to invest in new things was tough. So I went to a slightly larger organization, which is HCF. And that was my first kind of exposure into the startup world because we, as sort of heading up strategy. We had that question about how do you drive innovation? There's lots of really interesting things going on in the startup world. So I was involved in setting up HCF Catalyst and we partnered and the very first year we ran, it was a little bit of an unknown. It was the first health tech accelerator in Australia, got a big variety of um, quality of applications into that program. But we always knew that out at the end of it, we wanted to have really strong value back for customers. So being able to pay for a service as part of a benefit from a health insurance product. The second year was night and day. As soon as you get a bit of word around and you get some better quality, there have been some really interesting businesses. And that kind of sparked my and opened my eyes into the world of startups. And when I left HCF, I was like, 
digital is the way forward. I definitely want to get more involved in startups and I want to get more involved in digital. So when I joined ComBank, it was actually in a role to partner with startups and do experiments on the ComBank app. And so I got to learn firsthand the challenges of making things happen in a large organization and startups that can move very quickly. That was incredibly rewarding. And the lucky coincidence there happened that Beamit had just been launched to the market, which was a consortium um, of a couple of big banks. And there were discussions saying, you know what, you know, startups and like thinking about things from scratch, new digital businesses are going to be the way of the future. Actually, ComBank, you need to, you can do this in a more replicable way if you create a structure around this so that you can have businesses that can run slightly independently, but still benefit from being associated with a large organization. So that was really the business case for X15. So I kind of by default almost fell into the role of investing where I was managing a portfolio of partnerships with startups, you know, experimentation with ComBank. And then it turned into actually what we want to do is incubate and build new ventures as well as invest in startups in order to help them scale and help them get the benefit of working with a bank rather than having to do the running around with 50 different stakeholders. So that's really how I got into venture investing. So it's really interesting. I've seen you say somewhere that there were sort of eyebrows raised when you took a left turn from not-for-profit into sort of the heart of capitalism in venture. Two questions. Where did the passion for -for not-for-profit come from? And what made you confident that you could find an expression for your values in venture? The passion for not-for-profit, I think I've had it for as long as I can remember. I've always been involved in volunteering. I think when you talk about sort of personal values, and I've done those strengths finders assessment where they say inclusion is one of your values. So diversity and inclusion has always been, I've been that person that is really interested by people from all different walks of life and how is it that they can like thrive and live a really meaningful life. And did that come from your upbringing? Or? Not at all, because my parents were very confused by it. <laughs> so I'm really not sure where it came from, but that's just something that's always personally been important to me. So even when I started at ComBank, I started working part-time and luckily they supported that. And I have a therapy dog, so I go to aged care homes and talk to people who, you know, are on the brink of death or a serious mental illness. And I think it's really important when you're thinking about designing services for people that you have an awareness of the breadth of your customer base and bring lots of different perspectives in. And I think that's what's really exciting about doing investing because you speak to people who really, really understand the problem and really understand the customers have really deep empathy and are solving that. And that's a challenge sometimes in a corporate because you can't have people that are just so dedicated to that one thing that they want to solve and have the ability to do that. So we'll come back to the investing bit in a minute, but tell us about why you decided to become a founder. At my heart, I've always been a bit of a builder and I've love driving change. And it's just for me been about finding the right environment in which I can make that change. So I've kind of tried in a smaller not-for-profit felt wasn't big enough. I want to try it in a sort of larger not-for-profit. And after a couple of years, I was like, I actually need to really build this digital skill. That's why I'm here. So I feel like I've built that digital skill. And I sort of knew that with X15, there was definitely going to be an opportunity somewhere down the line. And if it didn't come up after a couple of years to find the right sort of nexus of something with lots of backing and investment, but something that also has a really good social impact, I'd be able to find a different way to make that happen. So I'm very lucky that 
I was able to pitch the idea for Kit and also run it in a way that really aligns with my values. So if you have a look at our approach, we've engaged with EY to do a financial capability outcomes framework. We've done an evaluation and use behavioral scientists to think about how do we best implement this in such a way that we're actually proving that we're improving kids' financial capability. So you can have both. <laughs> I could not love Kit more because it's such an important skill to be acquired early in life. But can you tell us what Kit does, how it does it, and how you'll measure success? Yes, so a bit of a newsflash, my CMO may kill me, but we have actually, we set out with a framework. And so we said, what we're going to measure success with, there are four dimensions um, that we prioritize on that framework. So we know from the research that children who have access and experience money moments and talk about money in everyday situations with their parents are more financially capable as adults. And studies have shown that when they become adults, they save more money, they're likely to be less stressed. So we went out and said, we want to encourage children to talk about money, to be saving money, setting and achieving savings goals that shows an ability to plan for the future, be able to spend using sort of spending strategies and spend in line with their values, um, and also be able to earn money, whether that's doing chores or pocket money or like actually getting a job. And they're the sort of four elements that we went out. So the kit app is really designed to facilitate that learning by doing. So it's a virtual account and a prepaid card where kids can do chores and you may have chores that you have to do. You can have bonus chores to earn money. Then with the money that they earn, they can create what we call saving stacks, which is an ability to save your money. But it's all done in a very personalized sort of kid first way. So they can choose little stickers to personalize their stack. There's little water levels that rise and animations in the app to make that more engaging. And then they can spend, and that all comes with parental controls because parents are obviously very nervous the first time they give kids access to a card, so like daily spend limits, and you can block individual merchants if you don't like that they've spent too much on Maccas after school. And then the most important thing is learning. So in line with that learning by doing, Kit is a little black bouncy character, and when certain things happen in the app, Kit will nudge the kids. So for example, the first time the card is activated, Kit will come up with a little nudge and say, hey you've just activated the card, you want to know all about how it works. And so Kit gives the kid a quiz about who can use your card? Is it just you and your parents or can anyone? And so it encourages the kid to keep it safe, the card safe. And it talks about how the money you have in the account is all you can really spend or the daily limit is all you can spend. So as they're using the app, Kit is then nudging and encouraging them and teaching them bits and pieces all about money. So it's not meant to be formal learning, so to speak, but it's all about how do you surf stuff and have facilitate those conversations at the right point in time. And seize the learning moment, so learning where the kid is open to being receptive. Where does gender fit into all of this? Because my observation is adult women are very reluctant to talk about money. Obviously, older women are the biggest group of people who are experiencing poverty, homelessness, um, some really unpleasant life outcomes. Is Kit trying to address some of that early in terms of that gender imbalance around money? Absolutely. And I think the biggest factor, firstly, there's sort of women who were brought up to think, oh, don't worry about money. Your father or your husband will take care of it. And so there's that feeling of, oh, I'm not sure what I'm doing. We've definitely thought sort of long and hard about that in Kit, how we address people who feel less confident about teaching money, because we know that financially capable adults tend to have financially capable kids. So you actually need to break that cycle. So we're 
teaching kids, but we have to be aware that at the same time, we may also be teaching parents. There's a lot of shame involved with money sometimes. I think when you feel, if you feel like you're not there and money's complex, right? Like I don't have time to do my budget Excel. I do it once a year. And one of those people that has a budget Excel, but I don't check it every single month. And there are people. And I think maybe some people have the assumption that in order to be good at money, you've got to be that person that's just always on it. And like, you've got everything sorted, but it's pretty unrealistic. So making adults like, you know, and particularly women feel like, you know, it's fine to not have everything. It's really important to make a small step. And um, so if a kid's learning about saving, you should also think about how you might save it. It doesn't have to be X hundred tens of thousands of dollars. It's just get into the habit. And then when you have something small, you can continue to build on that. And that is a good journey to take people on. So it's fabulous that you're building something really important in kit. It's really sad that you're not a check writer anymore because there are so few female investors in venture. Why do you think that is? So there are similar dynamics happening in venture that there are in sort of traditionally male dominated industries. So what you see is typically like the such an importance on network, particularly in venture network is really, really important. And so if you have a network of people who all give opportunities to each other, it gets really hard to break into that. So I think that particularly in venture, there can be a perception sometimes that it's exclusive or elitist. I think there are lots of great investors out there trying to break down that that perception now. So I'm very positive with the way it's all heading, but it takes a little bit of time to particularly get people to question their biases. Because I feel like we're at a stage now where people know there's a problem. There's lots of reporting around sort of the gender gap when it comes to like investors and things, but to actually completely shift things, people need to start questioning their unconscious biases rather than their conscious biases. So you're fantastic because you're willing to A, talk about it and B, put time around it. You sit on panels, you talk about some of these issues. What else can we do to be moving the dial so that there is more gender equal representation in venture? So the number one thing I always talk about is everything starts at home. So you've got to walk the talk first before you can kind of give that out to the rest of the world. So if you feel like the mental load isn't split 50-50 in your house, that's everything starts at home. I insist with my husband. So when I took parental leave for the birth of my first son, I took off just over six months and I insisted he do the same. And that was very controversial. He was in an organization that didn't support parental leave at all. So, you know, it might surprise you in Australia, there are still companies like that, but there definitely are. So he ended up quitting his job and taking the six months off to be with our son. And he found it incredibly rewarding. And, you know, he's much more competent than me in certain things. He's got that sort of much better EQ than I do, the spidey sense of, I know this is exactly what's wrong and this is what I need to do to fix it. So sometimes, you know, I think if you have those unconscious biases, I think sometimes women might think, oh, you know, men aren't good at this, but it's not true. It's just that we've never given them the opportunity. Same with money. You know, women are good at money. Well, no, that's because They've never been given the opportunity to be good at money. So that's at home. And then the second thing I'd say is the startup community is so generous and positive. And I think being open to lending a hand and being helpful when you can, even if it's small in like conversations that you might have, tips that you might give to people, when you're generous and you see people that you think, I think that's a diverse founder, they may not look like the typical, what people might assume is the typical to really encourage them and build that self-belief because there's nothing worse than that kind of feeling of looking around the room and you're like, I'm the only one here that looks like I am and do I really belong here? So you've seen both sides of the funding journey now, but you're a founder that it's 
taken some external investment. How's that helped inform your understanding as an investor? Really interesting. I think if I had my time again and went back into investing, I'd definitely be much more open, I think, to really digging in deeper than kind of what people may be presenting on the surface. I sort of go back and think about, you know, there's an investment that we made NX15 into own home, which is like a rent to buy proposition. And it sort of made me question, I saw that proposition maybe 10 or more different times from different founders. And it makes me think, what is it that was different about each of those things? Like, yes, there was content or like business model and like those kinds of things. But then what was the criteria that I used to think, you know, why one team might be better than the other? And is there unconscious bias at play? Is there anything you would give as advice to founders thinking about raising capital? I can definitely give advice from an, an X15 perspective just because it's very different to a typical venture capital firm. Do you want to just explain the X15 model? Absolutely. So X15, we call ourselves a venture scaler. So X15 builds and invests in digital businesses that can we can help to scale through the bank's 15 million customers. And so, for example, with investments, strategic value is sort of the number one thing. So when you're pitching to an organization like SN, you need to think really closely about what would be the top priorities to a bank exec's mind, because we get buy-in from the bank before we even do investments so that there is a pathway and we can say, this is how we would help you and this is how you can help ComBank. So having a really good idea and even, you know, taking the time to have those conversations and really work that out. The Accelerate program that XFD ran this year was great because they helped facilitate that process. We took startups that may not have partnered with the corporate before and actually helped them have those conversations to really sharpen their narrative on this is why you should invest in me and this is the benefit that the bank can bring. Because I think sometimes startups think, you'll email all of your customers about me and then I'm just going to be amazing. It's going to be good. What we actually find is that bank customers, unless you reach them at a time when they're really open to the proposition and you get the targeting exactly right, just sending an email to everyone doesn't really do much. So you have to be really clear about how that partnership is going to work. So advice beyond thinking about your narrative, what else would you say to founders wanting to raise capital? Be honest. (laughs) I know people have talked about females kind of get discounted and they get asked more questions about what could go wrong. But I think nowadays people are getting much more savvy about really understanding like what is the motivation of this founder and are they in it to for their own purposes or are they in it really about the customer? So if you can be transparent and really show your belief and your understanding of the customer and the problem, that will get you really far. Is there a failure or setback either in as a founder and investor or generally in life that you've learned a lot from? I'll share a personal one here. So about 10 years ago, um, somebody that you could call an insecure overachiever and trying to be working on the insecure side, I ended up burning out in a really big way because I was working like seven days a week. I wasn't eating properly. I wasn't sleeping properly. I was just work, work, work and sort of completely ignoring my body. So I've had to do a lot of work since then to really not just be all about the goal, because you could probably hear from my career history, I've always been about purpose. And then realizing that, well, if you're burnt out and you lose your short-term memory for three months, you're not very useful, are you, to actually deliver the purpose? So you actually need to find a balance. So my advice to people is always just 
always check in with yourself and always look inside to make sure that you're living in a way and you create the routines and habits that help make it easier to stay healthy so that you then can give as much as you can. Are you able to share any of your routines and habits that help you be productive but also remain healthy and balanced? So I worked with an amazing coach actually that helped introduce some of those habits to me. So working, trying to overcome the insecure part of the overachiever, there was a lot that I had to do. It was quite confronting, actually. So for people that don't have a lot of self-confidence, looking in the mirror can be really confronting. And they that was something I had to do. <laughs> it's just kind of look at yourself in the mirror in the morning because typically you tend to avoid because you feel this shame that, you know, you're not good enough. So looking in the mirror and acting as if you are worthy. So often I'd be caught up sometimes with making negative comments about myself and you have to catch yourself because if you are thinking that and you say that you kind of tend to reinforce those negative self-beliefs so catching myself when I was doing it and saying actually that's just an insecurity talking and you need to kind of acknowledge it and realize that that's not actually you it's just a thought those things really helped and apart from that just mindfulness so uh, having a son is great for being mindful because like there's such a handful and you can't really be distracted because <laughs> if you as soon as you're distracted something disastrous happens so <laughs> in terms of founders it's a really hard journey because you never finish your to-do list it's sort of high stakes you sort of default death situation all the time how do you find a way to be kind to yourself but also operate at the pace that requires staying alive. It's a challenge. I'll be honest, I'm not sure I've got it 100% right right now. It's always a balance and checking in with yourself and knowing, you know, building an amazing supportive team around you. I'm very lucky I've managed to recruit some really supportive people who you know, I can be transparent with and share challenges because that's a shared load. It's not just on me, although sometimes it's it can feel like, oh my gosh, you know, no one cares about this business as much as I do and how am I going to make all this stuff happen? I actually, that's a bit of an overreaction. I am very lucky that I do have a team that is incredibly committed. So being able to share the emotional load is important. I think also realizing that sometimes you are dispensable. I managed to go on holidays for three weeks and nothing last year. It was post-COVID. My son had never met his great-grandparents overseas. And so I went there for the first time and nothing fell over. How did founders check that potential investors are also aligned with their values and also are respectful of founder wellbeing? I think it's in a little bit of a different context just because we have CBA as kind of a whole owner. So luckily it's an environment where the MDs of the different ventures and the founders of the other ventures, we actually are pretty supportive. And we talk about ourselves being really lucky because I know that it's not consistent across the VC community that they build a strong community around founders. So I'm very lucky that I've got others that I can just call and have a whinge to and have a rant and I'm facing this issue and share that because that really helps with the well-being. And I think strategic alignment, it's something that as an, a corporate owned kind of startup, it's just that is crucial to the success of your venture, having a pathway and being able to demonstrate value. So one of the things we did this year was in the annual planning process, the CBA said, these are the things that we'd like you to do for us. And these are the things that we can do for you and go along that journey and specifically get that written into the plan, prioritized, funded to get that alignment 
In terms of things that you engage with to continue to expand your mind, are there podcasts or books that you would recommend? I feel like I'm going to recommend the same ones as everybody else. Like Masters of Scale is an absolute winner. I'm really a big fan of the Happiness Lab. That's more of a psychological one, but it talks, there's some really interesting things in there around like wisdom from the ancients and how to make friends as an adult. I'm a big fan of, I'm going to give another shout out. It's called Aria. It's academic research in your hands. It's a marketing blog, but basically the blog writer, he researched all of the new academic research coming out about marketing tools and techniques and just summarizes it in an email to you. What about productivity hacks? I mean, you've got a family and a business and you're generous in sharing your insights and time with the ecosystem. Are there tools that you use that make you productive? I won't say it's tools per se because I'm pretty disorganized. When I came back from parental leave, I realized that I didn't have the short-term memory I had before and it's never come back because there's a part of my brain that's just now dedicated to having a child. So I've actually used that to my advantage, which is if it's not important, I'll just forget about it. <laughs> so I think it's just, I, I try not to be formal. I try not to spend time like organizing and things like that. I actually just start every day and just think, what are the most important things I have to do today? What are the most important things I have to do this week? And just keep that in my mind at all times and just check in with myself and say, am I working on the most important thing? Yeah, because I also have seen you say that, setting your intention every day is important to you. What does that do for you? I think it helps ground you and have a better perspective just because your intention doesn't necessarily have to be just about work. It can be, but it can also be about who you are. And particularly if I check in with myself in the morning and think I feel a bit sick or like I feel like I'm not in a great mood today, being able to set the intention that I'll just ride through it and acknowledge that Things aren't great, but without kind of going into the mindless self, then I'll then react and get angry at something that is pretty minor. Last question. What are you really excited and optimistic about? I'm really optimistic about more diverse founders coming through the rank. There's a lot more to do, but that's something that when I go out and speak to people, I just find there's so much enthusiasm. I'm so jealous of university students these days because I've been a coach for the Startmate, like student fellowship. And the access that they have to the ecosystem, just even from university, like I really wish that I had something like that when I was in university. I mean, I only stumbled into the startup world by accident. So I'm really optimistic with all the enthusiasm that's out there and the growth that's going to happen in the ecosystem. Well, it really feels like you're part of the solution to the extent that it's hard to be what you can't see. You being a really visible role model on both sides of the, the venture system is just fantastic. So thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you so much, Catherine, for the opportunity. It's been fabulous to chat. We hoped you loved today's conversation as much as we did. As an investment venture firm founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like we do. We believe that education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both investors and founders. You can find them on our website. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize this significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing us at ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss a minute.